1: Hey, everybody. This is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack Podcast, where we talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation within startups. Today, I am talking to the former founder of Drivably, which was acquired by ACV. It was a uh car tech companies a vehicle tech what's the proper nomenclature automotive tech automotive tech that would that would yeah be, that's that yeah, would be baby. good um and now you are off doing some um some different kinds of stuff which I want to talk about but you know give us a little bit about your background first Tyler
0: oh I think there's versions of this there's the one minute version there's the seven minute version the thirty the one hour and the Ten hour version. G- give me so I'll go one with that's, the
1: yeah. Give me the one that's just gonna you know make the ratings just go up. I'll the go
0: top. with the two. Okay. I think I think the one's tough to cram everything in. The two mm-hmm. minute version is. Um, I was in college, Salt Lake City, Utah. School full time, working full time. Saved up enough money, bought my first car. Uh, ended up realizing I got a great deal on that car, so I sold it and I made three thousand dollars, which was a ton of money at the time. Didn't think a whole lot of it. Bought another car, sold it next thing you know, I'd bought and sold 200 cars going through college. And so I got really good at buying and selling cars to make money. Um, through that, I eventually became an uh, investor in early stage car dealership, a uh, buy here, pay here, salvage and rebuilt car dealership. Learned a lot about the automotive space, uh, developed some passions and thesis around things that I could solve in the auto space. I had a mentor say, hey, instead of like doing an MBA, why don't you go join an early stage tech company? My brother was friends with this guy named Josh James who started a company called Omniture that was acquired by Adobe for $2 billion, the biggest exit in Utah history at the time. He was starting a second company called Domo. So I went and met with Josh. I joined Domo early on. Domo ended up IPOing. After Domo, I joined a company called HireVue. We ended up selling that business for a half a billion dollars to a private equity group. And then in 2018, I founded uh, Auto Hall, which was a car dealership. And there we incubated Drivably, our tech company. Uh, ended up raising a few million dollars in January of 2019, um, backed by some really good VCs like Porsche. Had our fair share of ups and downs, mostly downs. <laughs> Ended up uh, catching a drift during COVID. Mm-hmm. Had some had some lucky timing, uh, transparently, and ultimately were acquired by ACV Auctions about a year later, which was Jan- which was October of last year, twenty twenty one. For those who are having a hard time tracking what year we're in, so <laughs> yeah,
1: <nice. laughs> so you were with the you know the the creme de la creme of Utah Tech for a while.
0: Yeah, I I cut my teeth in Utah Tech like early on, which was amazing. I, I say early on, right? You had like Novell, Word Perfect, which sure. was like way back in the day, but then, you know, Omniture was the first big tech company coming into Utah. And I think Josh and Omniture really is what set the foundation or the tone for Utah to be what it is today. So it was really fun. I, I was, you know, at that time you could probably count on One hand, the number of tech companies that would have been interesting to join in Utah at the time. Today, there's probably 200 tech companies in Utah that would be like really interesting companies to get involved in.
1: Yeah. And there's probably like 20 VC firms too.
0: Yeah. At least it's insane. And at that time, there was like, there was like two, like one and a half, which Mm -hmm. is crazy to think about how far Utah's come.
2: Mm hmm.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, Tyler, what did you do for those companies? Were you kind of in the sales and marketing kind of departments, customer success? How'd you, where'd you land?
0: I weaseled my way in, uh, in sales because it was what I knew. It was what I was comfortable with. It was what, candidly, I was really good at. And so uh, basically when I met with Josh, I just said, I will do whatever you want me to do. And he's like, cool. Like our entry level sales role is called account development manager. You should do that. Met with the head of sales. Uh, during the interview, he made me a job offer. I ended up starting the next day. And so uh, start out as low on the totem pole as you can. And for anybody who's like interested in getting into tech, that's what you do. Mm-hmm. You you start out as an ADM or or an SDR, sales development rep, um, and you work your way up. And so I was, I was really a domo, sort of on the fast track to like management or doing whatever I wanted to do in sales. Um, when I left there three years later, Right when I started to give you an idea, we were probably, I don't know, 50 people. We had raised like five million dollars of venture capital. When I left three years later, we had raised 900 million of venture capital. <laughs> it was the highest <laughs> funded SaaS company in history at the time, and and we went from like 50 people and like maybe 10 people in sales to 150 people in sales and almost a thousand. It was BI, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. BI. Yeah. Like. Crazy amounts of hype. Josh was a master fundraiser. The technology itself was like, it was okay. Like it wasn't great. Tableau I think was kicking our ass when it came to like really good BI technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience.
1: And then and you invested, so you, you made, you made some, some bones there obviously. And then you went off and you invested into a, a, a car dealership where you incubated drivably. And what was drivably about?
0: Yeah. So, so after I did those two software companies, um, 2018, January, I, I founded auto hall, which my last name, easy to remember, uh, still operational today, still doing very well. Um, and the reason I did that was because I wanted to know exactly what it was like to be my customer, right? So instead of like doing the lean startup methodology and going and finding dealers to partner with me, and and be like design partners i said you know i'm just going to be a dealer myself mm-hmm. so it was a really expensive r&d project <laughs> um but it but it paid dividends because i i i treated it like a dealership i started it from the ground up um we did you know it was an existing building we did ti's on the building we did um ti's on the uh, on the lot the surfaces outside uh we acquired all of the assets ourselves we went out we got lines of credit we partnered with um, you know, detail companies and imaging companies and, and you name it. Like we, 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 we ran this thing like a car dealership, but behind the scenes, the reason it existed was so we could incubate drivably. And so we had like developers that would come in and were writing code inside of our dealership and customers would come in and want to buy a car or look at a car and they would approach them. And these people knew nothing about like <laughs> selling a car. So they'd just be like, uh, talk to that guy over there. Right. right? So um yeah, so we, we different
1: kind of experience for so much totally
0: Yeah, to, like totally wild that, that we did it this way, but but it helped. Like you know, and, and one of the advice that I give to founders is if you want to start a company, like you should understand like not only deeply understand the problem, but you should also know what it's like to be your customer. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to sell HR technology into HR people, like you should probably be an HR first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like if you want to, if you want to sell sales technology into VPSLs, VP of sales, like you should probably know what it's like to be a VP of sales. And this was the same with us. Like we wanted to sell to car dealerships. And so I said, let me just go be a car dealer first, Mm -hmm. whether it takes a year or two or five, it happened to be fast. It took a year and we spun drivably out um, exactly one year in.
2: Yeah.
1: And then that is um, arguably probably the best way to get product market fit.
0: I think so. I mean, it's, it's the hardest way, right? Like even, even prior to that, I was thinking maybe I'll just go join a dealership and be an employee at a dealership. Like go from being like, you know, a pretty like well-respected exec in the software world, making a lot of money to like Mm -hmm. going and selling cars in a car dealership. It would have been crazy. (laughs) I never, I never did it. Like I I actually wish I would have done that too, but I took the, I took a different path and we just built a dealership from the ground up. Gotcha.
1: And, um, what was the value proposition of drivably?
0: So when we, when we started the dealership, um, I knew, I knew enough about the automotive space from my experience in college flipping cars and being, I was actually an investor in a dealership prior to doing drivably, um, several years before that. And, um, when we started auto hall, I had like, I started writing down all of the Gaps that I thought existed in the automotive space that we could solve. Mm-hmm. I had a list of like over thirty things. I think it was thirty-one or thirty-two things. And so when we started Auto Hall, I didn't have conviction on one thing or another. I knew like I knew there was a ton of problems around um, their inability to use data in a meaningful way. So there was all this data floating around out there that dealerships had access to. They had all of their internal sales data, reconditioning data, et cetera, et cetera, but they weren't using it to like inform their business at all. And so I thought that was weird. The second thing I thought was weird was car dealerships were all competing for vehicles at auctions or fleets like rental car companies, other large scale fleets. Um, And this was their source of used cars predominantly was auctions. And so, but I also knew that when a car dealer would acquire a car from a consumer, take a trade-in, that car was much more unique. It was cleaner. It was easier to recondition. It was faster to get to the front line and it made more money ultimately. So, so I had these like two sort of core thesis that I wanted to solve. We started AutoHaul. We wrote down like 30 things we wanted to solve. And I think the, the core thesis that I had was the right one, which was if we could enable car dealers to better understand the data that they have access to, to make better purchasing decisions, On what cars to buy, where to buy them from, and how much money to pay to maximize profit margins—that's a product that dealers would pay for. And sure enough, we we developed that. We we developed what I think is probably the most robust um, pricing engine for used cars in the world, Um, where we could take like very limited data. We could take a VIN, for example, on a car, and the odometer, the mileage. And we could predict with a pretty high level of accuracy what that car was worth in any given region across the U S. So think of it as like the high frequency trading algorithm for used cars. Right. Um, and so we did that and, and going into COVID, we thought we had, we thought we had built like this, by the way, like first dev team we hired to build this nine months in like totally didn't find product market fit, horrible product, didn't work, whole dev team gone like got rid of the whole dev team. We did it in house. Then we outsourced the v 2 of the product uh, to a, to a agency. They built an amazing product in like three months that we could get to market. We started selling it. I wouldn't say we have product market fit yet, but we started to have really good traction. And then going into COVID COVID happened. And this product we thought was like life or death was very much a nice to have. Mm-hmm. And so dealers started canceling left and right. And we went from having about 35 customers on the platform to like zero in a matter of a week.
1: So where did you, where did you Where did you miss? Like where, where was that gap between knowing like in hindsight, everyone can money morning quarterback, yeah. but like, where did you think that it was life or death versus like, where did you feel like, were you just buying your own biases?
0: Yeah. hundred percent. I, like, I think we, you know, we didn't do enough work with customers to understand like actually how valuable the product was. I don't think we attached drivably to a tangible ROI. And so people would say, we would say, look, by using drivably, you're going to hypothetically make more money because you're going to understand how much money to pay for a car to maximize profit. But we never like tied it back to anything. So we wouldn't like close the loop and circle back. And, and it was only like three or four months old at this point, right? So Like, I guess, give ourselves a little bit of grace for that. But we never circled back and said, okay, before you had Drivably, you bought this many cars, you made this much money.
1: You didn't build that into the product.
0: Now. Right. Yeah. So, so like, there was no way to know, like, is this actually working or does it just feel good to have it? Mm -hmm. And it was very clear when COVID happened, like, it just was a feel good product, right? So that was probably our big miss.
1: Interesting. Yeah. So figuring out how the ROI is built into the product from day one.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and like being able to tell that story out of the gate like in the sales process and then once you onboard them and then ongoing forever is important. So like anytime somebody buys software to use, I'm convinced that 99% of the time they they continue to use it because it is affecting the bottom line or generating some sort of ROI that's like very clear to them. When it's not, I think that's when companies suffer from churn. hmm
1: Churn tsunami.
0: <sighs> yeah.
2: <it's> stressful.
1: <laughs> it's very, I mean, I give founders a lot of credit. First, you you know, you do everything you can to put them to buy your software and then all the money, all the expense. I know. And then it just goes out the window.
0: Yeah. It's it's the worst. So to close the loop on that, like COVID happens, right? Our whole business like basically goes to shit. Um, had to do some really hard things, like reduce our team by eighty percent, right? Yeah, to give you an idea. We weren't a big team, but we were about sixteen people. And um, so we got super lean. Uh Porsche came in at that point, wrote us a check. Um, and that gave us like breathing room and runway to just like see the world more clearly. We went and acquired a company at that point based in Canada. We can talk about that. That acquisition was um a stock deal that was either going to send us straight to the bottom to zero, or it was going to be a home run. There was not going to be anything in between. Mm -hmm. We did it. We took a big risk and coming out of COVID, you had this all-time high consumer demand for vehicles Mm -hmm. and an all-time low supply of cars available. And so it created this perfect storm and we pivoted from being a pricing engine at that point to a marketplace where dealerships could acquire private consumer vehicles like URI's car mm. instantly. We were the only one that commercialized that for dealers. So Carvana and CarMax and these others were doing it for themselves, but nobody had actually commercialized it and provided it as, as a like, sort of out-of-the-box solution to dealers. We we're the only ones. And so our business, basically starting in August after we integrated the two companies, was a straight shot to the moon this was after years of like full on struggle, bus almost right. dying, running out of money several yeah, times,
1: punch in the face constantly.
0: Yeah, like 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 literally depressed in the middle of COVID, like crying, sweating, the whole deal, mm-hmm. to um, gr- like growth that we couldn't keep up with at all, mm-hmm. um, coming out of COVID. So again, like sometimes it's I think the maybe the big lesson there is we just didn't die. Like Mm -hmm. it's not, I I don't think we did anything. I mean, maybe I could give myself more credit, but like, I I don't think we did anything that special. I don't think our product was like earth shattering. Mm I don't think our team was the most talented team. Candidly, amazing team, great people, but like not the most talented or educated or whatever. Like we were just resilient. Me and mm-hmm. my co-founder, we just, like, didn't accept defeat. We just wouldn't die. We wouldn't go away. And eventually, if you're around long enough, something's going to happen. And we were fortunate that it was a global pandemic that ended up, <laughs> you know, giving tailwinds to our business. Just for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, COVID gods. Yeah. So.
1: What are you doing now, Tyler?
0: Um, well. To cut to the chase, i now I spend all of my time with early stage founders, CEOs. Um, how I got there is quite a story. Do you want it?
2: Sure, let's do it.
0: All right. this one will be longer than two minutes uh, because I think it's extremely relevant and probably will strike some chords uh, with some people because it's a full on roller coaster ride so So we exited drivably in October of 2021, last year. When this comes out, it might be two years ago, but October 2021. Um, And I was extremely happy with where we landed. Uh, I love the team. I love the CEO of ACV. Um, I love their product. They went from zero to $5 billion valuation in like five years, a public company. and Uh, it was was sort of a perfect match, like the integration of the two technologies was a perfect match. So um, in fast forward five months, and I'm in New York City, I'm with the CEO of ACV. Um, We're doing this like analyst slash investor day at NASDAQ. It's a big deal. I wake up the morning of the the investor day presentation, and I have a call coming in from my mother-in-law. And it was 5 a.m. Arizona time. Not only does my mother-in-law not call me ever, but not at 5 a.m. Arizona time, right? So when I saw the call come in, I don't know if you've ever had one of these experiences in your life. Like I immediately knew something was wildly wrong or mm-hmm. off. Um, I hesitantly answered the phone. She said, hey, um, I know you're... Yeah, on in New York City on business, but uh, Brooklyn, who's my wife, her daughter is being rushed to the hospital in an ambulance, and um, and I said, "What's going on?" And and she wasn't exactly sure, but she said, "It's not good. You should probably like figure out how to get home." So I texted my assistant at the time, and I said, "Hey, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to be at the uh, investor day, I, and I need to get a flight home out of New York City." As fast as possible, and you've obviously spent time in New York City. Like trying to get out of there, let alone quickly, is really tough, right? Mm-hmm. So here I am. Get this news about my wife stuck in New York City. I'm in traffic in an Uber heading to the airport. I get to the airport. I've got a text update from my father-in-law, and um, and over the next five hours on the plane, I'm getting a thread of updates from him basically that are progressively getting worse about the condition of my wife, who's his daughter. Um, and you, you sort of just expect when really bad things like this happen that like, it's just going to get better, right? You you can't have the, in the beginning it was like, Oh, this is going to be fine. She will just start getting better. Mm -hmm. She will get to the hospital and start improving. And that wasn't happening. It was, it was the opposite. And so, the last text I got as I was getting off the plane, this was now i don't know seven seven or eight hours later, probably from when i when I got the call from my mother in law was basically something to the extent of like brace yourself like it's not it's not looking probable, like like she's gonna die, right and that was. That was really tough. She, she basically, she had a complicated pregnancy issue. Uh, she had a 5% chance to live. And um, to, to, to talk about the end of this all, she did live. She made it through. But that, that, that several days in the hospital and then subsequent 30 or so days of touch and go in our home with you know nurses and doctors and ivs and the whole thing uh was was incredibly challenging right and i spent i spent many days and nights restless in bed just thinking about life right so um it's unfortunate that sometimes it takes these sort of things to like wake up and ask these sort of questions like am i happy am i fulfilled what does fulfillment even mean Am I feeling that right? Like, so I started asking all these deep questions. Um, and I quickly realized that I, I wasn't fulfilled uh, doing what I was doing, being, being an operator and specifically being at the parent, parent company. Um, and I made a decision to um, support my wife and and my kids and, not be thinking about work or career or money or anything like that for a period of time. So I left the parent company. It's really hard. Hardest career decision I ever made for sure. Um, and through a series of events, I basically started leaning into several companies that wanted me to get involved as an advisor, um, a couple of which I ended up investing in personally. Um, I've partnered with a couple of venture capital funds closely and uh, we look at a lot of deals together. And through that, I had a CEO um, that I was an advisor to that said, "Hey, would you? The board has asked me to get a coach. Would you consider coaching me?" And my first response was, "That's not what I do, right? There's professional CEO coaches out there that do this for a living, and they're really good. And a lot of times they have degrees in psychology and and um, you know human behavior and and I said." You know, let me introduce you. I had a CEO coach, life changing, and I'll introduce you to him and some others. And he insisted. He said, "No, I actually think it's you. I want it to be you. Would you just entertain taking me on as a, as a client?" And so I thought about it, and uh, ultimately I said yes. And over the next thirty days, um, my entire life was changed. Like I now knew what it felt like to feel fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Um, every single call, we did one call a week for one hour dedicated to um, his biggest sort of fears and challenges and opportunities that he was facing in his company. And that hour every week was the most meaningful hour of my week by tenfold. Um, and so after I did that for about a month, I decided to go all in and and coach CEO. So I'm taking on, I've taken on a handful of clients full-time. And I'll just, to put a bow on this, you know, a lot of the CEOs that I work with, they have this deep desire to spend time with other CEOs. And so um, I've also decided to start a cohort-based CEO coaching program where I put five CEOs in a cohort. Uh, These cohorts last six months. And it's, instead of one-on-one coaching, there's five of us, it's a one-hour call once a week. Um, where we talk about your, basically your top goal. Uh, we hold each other accountable. We get super vulnerable with each other. Uh, we share our deepest fears and challenges. And then, um, you know, I help, I help provide where appropriate frameworks and methods for, uh, solving some of those things. So that is how I got to where I'm at today. And it's extremely fulfilling and, um, and I think the CEOs that I work with find a lot of value in it. So, what
1: are like the common things you deal with the CEOs from a mindset perspective?
0: Yeah, I think um, I think there's probably three core traits or characteristics of most CEOs when I start working with them. One of them is this idea that's called the energy audit. And the idea of the energy audit is that when you do things that you're great at and that you also love to do, it creates energy. Okay. So you could probably think right now, David, of something you're great at that you love to do, right? Does it give you energy? Mm -hmm. Now, when you do anything else, things you're not good at that you don't like to do or any version of that, it depletes energy. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in between. One of the biggest um, pitfalls of CEOs is burnout, right? It's, this is a very real thing. Like I experienced this in, in a, in a big way to where I was ready to quit several times. I was just burnout. I was just done. And it's because I wasn't focusing on doing the right things. I wasn't energized. So, so that's one of the first common ones. And and one thing I work with CEOs on a lot is, um, is just, It's called the energy audit because every week we go back and we audit the tasks and the calendar of the CEOs that I coach and we determine what percentage of their time they're spending in their zone of genius, which is things they love that they're great at Mm -hmm. that that provide energy. And the goal is to be in the 80, 80 percentile of zone of genius all the time. And it takes a long time. A lot Mm -hmm. of times you start out your 20 to 30% as average, and it'll take several months often to transition away from doing all those things that are energy detractors. Um, So so that's the first one is is how do we create more energy in the CEO? Uh, The second one is this idea of um, radical transparency. So one thing I think CEOs struggle deeply with is just being honest, right? And this sounds crazy, but talk to any CEO that's pitching VCs and you say like, hey, behind closed doors, what percentage of this is true and accurate and fully honest? Mm-hmm. What do you think, David? Yeah, yeah. You're a VC. <laughs> what do you think?
1: 20%.
0: I mean, it's, it's like very low, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, okay, VCs aren't like dumb, right? They know you're bullshitting them when you're bullshitting them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and if they don't and you're able to fool them, and get through to the other side and get a check. Well, now you're stuck with this person. And then they're going to realize like, oh, your business actually isn't what you said it was, right? Mm-hmm. So, and same question to you, David, like as a VC, like, have you ever, ever come across founders that are just like over the top, honest and authentic and transparent? Mm-hmm. Like, how does that make you feel as a VC? Comfortable.
1: Very comfortable.
0: Do you want to invest in that? Founder? Yes.
1: A hundred percent. Right. All the time.
0: So, like, we trick ourselves as founders to say, like, oh, I have to grab this mask. Like, envision, like, you walk into a closet, and in your closet, instead of having hats hanging on the wall, like some guys like to do, you have, like, masks. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, today I'm going to be pitching five VCs on my company. So I'm going to grab my VC mask, and I'm going to put it on, and I'm going to go do my VC spiel. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? And then tomorrow I have two interviews because we're doing a press release. So I have an interview with Forbes and I have another one with TechCrunch. I'm going to grab my public-facing mask and I'm going to put that on. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow I'm interviewing three execs for our CFO role. I'm going to grab that interviewee mask. i put that on. Mm-hmm. That's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Sorry, like there's no other way to put it. And we as founders, we trick ourselves into believing that that is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And it's not. So, the second thing I work with CEOs is just feeling comfortable being yourself and being fully authentic, which is so hard to do. But once you do it, you know what happens, David? Like, first of all, you gain a ton more respect. It's really obvious when somebody's being authentic,
2: mm-hmm. it's
0: really obvious, like especially to smart people. Okay. You gain a ton more respect. But then all the people that shouldn't be a part of your circle, they just self select out mm-hmm. and they go, oh, the true version of you, I don't really like that version. Mm-hmm. I like the one where you were putting the mask on. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and so your, your relationships become a lot deeper and a lot more meaningful because the people who stay around, who stay with you are like the true ones, mm-hmm. the real ones.
2: Okay. What about, um, what about ego? And just battling ego. Cause I
1: see it from the VC side. Like completely, yeah, and it and it comes down. I was talking to um, a really great operator. Um, He's an operator, of one of the biggest, you know, chain of urgent cares, and he's just talking about his private equity partners, and um, he just was talking about the human capital behind it and not appreciating the ever learning empathy. And there's like this natural, and I feel it from a VC perspective that a natural inclination to grab as much as possible right and um if you don't feel like you're getting the deal you come to a point where you feel like you're getting taken over it's almost like it's an antithesis like oh i didn't get enough of the company Mm. or oh i didn't fuck them over enough like you know like you know it's it's really like a, a crazy type of you know mindset but how do you think about ego when it comes to founders
0: um i don't have a deep opinion Around ego, other than like all ego really stems from just insecurity. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think a lot of it goes back to if you can identify who you are and have deep belief and conviction in that identification of who you are, then there should be no ego. Right. Mm-hmm. Because as long as you're being the truest sense of yourself, if, there's, if confidence is a part of that, you're very confident that you're good at a certain skill mm-hmm. or whatever, that will come off in the right way to where it won't be interpreted as egotistical um, and really play to your advantage. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't have like, other than that, that is my belief on ego. Got it. The third thing, just to round that one out, is... So you have like, you have the energy on it, right? How do we create more energy? You have radical transparency and authenticity, this this idea of wear no masks. And then third uh, is fear, right? So all CEOs have these deep level of fears around different things that they deal with in their business. And you know, a, a common fear would be something like, um, I believe if I tell the truth when I'm pitching a VC, for example, then they are, they are not going to be interested in investing in me. And it's like, okay, how do you know that? I don't know. just logically makes sense. Okay, well, what if you told the truth? What would happen? Well, I don't think they would invest okay, why don't you, why don't you try telling the truth and being totally authentic and like, see how that goes. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, so, so CEOs, like in so, so many of the, I guess, seemingly important decisions that they make, the reason they make the wrong decision at the end of the day is because they had a fear that was irrational, that was very real to them because they were living it. And when they have a coach that can come in and look at this decision, they say, I'm scared to do a thing because of this. And, and I can look at it objectively from a very different view because I'm not living in it and I'm not scared and say, actually you should just go face the fear and do the opposite of what you think you should do. 100% of the time it's the right decision. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is an idea that, um, Matt Mochari who is a, you know, you have like, um, you have like, uh, Matt Mochari, I think is probably a top one or two, it's debatable, CEO coach in Silicon Valley history. And his framework was the framework that I used when I was a CEO at Drivably. but I didn't discover it until I was like two years in. And it's called the Mochari method. And so when I decided to dive all in on coaching, I reached out to Matt and I said, Hey, instead of building my own framework for coaching, everything I believe as an operator is in your book. Can I just use your framework in my coaching? He was like, absolutely. And I'll do you one better. Here's the entire thing. So he sent me the entire coaching framework that he uses with his CEOs. And then he ended up open sourcing it to the world. So it's free to everybody to have, which is amazing. Um, But this idea of fear is something that he talks a lot about. He says that he'll actually make a bet with his founders that, if they do the opposite of what they think they should do, which is typically the right decision, he says, if I'm ever wrong, you don't have to listen to me ever again <laughs> when I give you this advice. Mm-hmm. And he's like, needless to say, like, I've never been wrong. Mm-hmm. Typically, when, when you have a fear, that's a very real fear in your eyes and you do the opposite of what you think you should do. It works out.
1: Mm-hmm. Awesome. What's next?
0: Um. You know, I get asked the question often by um, by VCs and friends and others if I'm going to do another company. Um, and I think my answer is if that ever happens, it will be uh, because it happened very organically mm-hmm. uh, where perhaps at some later stage in my life, I will have a deep-rooted problem. It's very personal to me that I want to solve. And then I'll go and do that then. But for the time being, um, I'm really enjoying doing this. Um, You know, I've sort of, I'm taking a more, um, I think, strategic approach to coaching. So I'm launching a podcast myself. Uh, I, I've already talked to you about having you on, so, so we'll do this again, but on my podcast, uh, it's called the Roller Coaster podcast. It hasn't been announced to the world. So this would be this like the first that this anybody is the coming hears of it. Yeah. Um, the idea of the Roller Coaster podcast is to interview founder and CEOs who have had exits and understand the roller coaster that's required to build something great,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and we'll get super vulnerable and it'll be my job as the the host or the moderator to like take them down that path. Um, so I'm launching a podcast. I have a dinner series that I've launched called the collective founder dinner series. Right now I'm doing it only in Arizona. Uh, this will happen once a quarter. I have 15 founders and CEOs and then I'll invite a couple of VC friends. I invited you to the first one. You were out of town, but we're doing our next one next month. Um, end of next month, you'll see the invite for that. Um, that's I think an amazing movement. I'm, I'm considering building a nonprofit around this as well. Um, which I'm not prepared to talk about that yet, but, um, some exciting things to come there. And then, uh, you know, I'm advising several companies. I'm one-on-one coaching CEOs, and now I'm starting this cohort based program. So all of my life is around creating value for early stage founders.
1: Where can somebody find you?
0: Uh, I'm most active on LinkedIn. Um, so we will tag my LinkedIn in mm-hmm. this post. Um, I've also, the cohort-based program, I'm using a an app called Volley, which is amazing. It's kind of like, uh, do you remember Marco Polo? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Marco Polo, but for coaching. And I so- Uh, you can essentially just send me a video message anytime and I'll always respond as quickly as I can. So we don't have to wait for scheduled calls. So really excited about that. Uh, I'll put the link to my volley account in here as well. And um, yeah, and then I'll, I'll tag, you know, I'll tag my email, but LinkedIn is typically the best way to get to me.
1: Awesome. Well, Tyler, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, David. Yep. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning into The Capital Stack, where we talk to founders, investors, and operators about all things value creation and startups. We drop an episode every Tuesday. We can be found on all your platforms, iTunes, Spotify, and what's the other one? YouTube. And uh, if you like it, please subscribe, share it to a friend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for tuning in to The Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content.